0: Welcome to the Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in scripture. Welcome back to our podcast series on Old Testament Survey. Uh, my name is Brett Arndt with Lightbears Fayetteville. And at this point, we're getting close to the end of the Old Testament series. Uh, we, we've really walked through much of Israel's history at this point. And uh, today we're picking up in Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel. And to help us do that, we have Lightbearer's own Andrew Brill to shed some wisdom into that. Uh, Andrew, how are at you? At least in? I'll be here. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah. That's that's uh, probably more accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we, we've at this point this 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 theme that that this Lightbearer's theme that we've covered over the past weeks this idea of God glorifying Himself by dwelling with a holy covenant people. We, we've really up to this point seen that really to take shape. And so we we've seen the Lord's plan and intentness of gathering a people dwelling with them. We've seen the nation of Israel kind of uh, established and prosper. And then we've seen in past podcasts in Kings and Chronicles where it kind of goes south pretty quickly. There's this, this uh, division uh, the kingdoms are split and and then eventually uh, by by Assyria Babylon, they're they're kind of taken over and this, this, idea of God glorifying himself by dwelling with his people, it seems pretty, pretty, pretty grim, pretty bleak. And and yet that's where Ezekiel, Esther and Daniel come in. And so, uh, Andrew, uh, with that, give us give us a better understanding of, of why do we group these books together this way?
1: Well, and, and again, you know, we group them. When we say we group them, that's the way our Bible looks. The Hebrew Bible orders the books differently. But um, yeah, Ezekiel and Daniel are part of the major prophets. Uh, Esther is, is earlier, kind of at the end of the history section uh, before Job and Psalms. But um, the, the reason we do it, it, it'll help if I kind of back up and, and give some some historical clarity. So you mentioned Assyria and, and Babylon uh, in in 722 BC Assyria comes and conquers uh, what was called the Northern Kingdom. so it was the the kingdom of of Israel. Um, the northern ten tribes they're conquered and they're taken into captivity by Assyria, kind of the the ruling power of the day in the in the region. And the southern kingdom of Judah uh, which was two tribes and and Judah was the the largest, uh, Judah continues as a kingdom, and that's where the Davidic line was. Mm-hmm. So when the kingdom split, there was a northern kingdom um, that was a new kingly dynasty, and the southern kingdom was the the, the kingship of David and his line, David yeah. and Solomon. Anyways, so northern kingdom, southern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasts... Uh, an additional 120, 130 years. And then in 605 BC, Babylon, which is kind of the new reigning power of the day. Uh, the, the, the new kid on the block. Yeah, they, they've supplanted <laughs> Assyria. So they come in 605. Um, and while they don't destroy Judah at that point, um, Judah begins to basically pay tribute. And so um, that happens in 605 and then again in in, in 597, Babylon comes, and, and, and in both of those times, Babylon takes a group of Jews into exile, back to Babylon with them. Uh, and then in 586 B.C., uh, Babylon comes and, and destroys uh, Jerusalem. And so, really, it's when we talk about going into captivity, there are these three moments um, about 10 years apart each, 605, 597, 586 B.C., where um, the Jews go into exile, and some Jews are left behind in the land, and and uh, but but when we talk about the exile, that's what we're talking about. Then in 539 BC, so fast forward another 50 years, Babylon is defeated. They're defeated by uh, the Persian Empire. Uh, it's what's called the Medo-Persian Empire, but essentially becomes the Persian Empire. That's 539, and then in 537, shortly after that, the king of Persia Cyrus he sends some of the Jews back, and so that's when Second Chronicles. Um, what second Chronicles refers to, as uh, the very end of second Chronicles to say, Hey, Cyrus said, um, the Jews can return. And so some of them return another 20 years, they finish rebuilding the temples. Um, but in the midst of all of this, um, and then it's another 60 years after that, before Ezra and Nehemiah come back. So it's kind of a staged exit and then a staged return. Although there are some really big moments along the way. That said, what these three books have in common, really long-winded way of answering your question. (laughs) What these three books have in common is that Daniel, Ezekiel, and Esther are all written from within captivity. So Daniel uh, and Ezekiel are going to be written from within the Babylonian Empire. They're going to tell stories of what was happening to these people within Babylon. And then Esther's written even later. It's written from within the Persian Empire. Um, but the commonality is that all three are written from within exile, which is right. big because what it shows is it shows that God was present in exile. Mm. None of these three from anything we know came out of exile. Now, we don't know all the details of their lives, but it doesn't appear right. that any of them came out. So they lived and died in exile and God
0: was present in mm. exile with them. That's good. One of the uh, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit as far as the, the, the historicity of it, but I thought it was interesting. You mentioned uh, the other day with with Esther. Uh, it, it's, it's that, that, that Persian empire that, that, uh, we put it in maybe history that we're more aware of, uh, It's the Persians who, who battled the, the, the Spartans and, and had the, the, the battle of the Greeks. And so kind of to, to give maybe the listeners a good timeline of think of Esther around that time. And, and so again, as, as we're reading scripture, Esther's kind of more toward the, the beginning, early beginning pieces of, of, uh, the, the old Testament. And yet historically, I mean, that that's kind of the, the climate that's going on of, of the, this Persian Empire uh, uh, is, uh, is around that that uh, Spartan Greek time, and so that, that, that I think we're uh, at least me. I'm sure some of the listeners are, are a little more familiar with that historicity, but but that kind of puts puts a cool spin on yeah. it as well to say, hey, th- this is when Esther was around around this time. Yeah, she was born, or not? She was born again. We're pretty sure about some of these dates. The best estimate is that she was named
1: queen. In 479 BC, well, nine years later, this is a different historical event. But Socrates was born. Yeah, and so we like, know Socrates. Yeah, maybe Esther knew him. Maybe yeah. there was some <laughs> greeting where Esther met Socrates, or Socrates, or as they call him in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Socrates Johnson. <laughs> I'm sure
0: we're all familiar with that. I haven't heard of Bill and Ted's reference in a long uh, time. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you, one. Andrew. <laughs> um, so to, to to move on a little bit, so. Move mm-hmm. on from Villeneuve's excellent but, adventure. T- t- yes, unfortunately, we, yeah, it, it is excellent. The time traveling phone booth. Uh, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that part as well. It's been it's been probably at least twelve years since I've since I've watched that. But uh, unfortunately, yes, we, we will move on from that. And to go back to what you said, of, of you kind of gave a summary of those books. So now, kind of spread that a little bit. Give a quick summary of each book. So Ezekiel, yeah. Esther, Daniel, and, and you can choose whatever order. Yeah, you
1: I'll want take it. the freedom to do it for an order. Please, so please, please do that. Um, so I'm going to do Daniel first because Daniel uh, historically started first. So I said that there were kind of a, a staged exit. So the first, in 605 BC, when the Babylonians come and they kind of exert their power on Judah, um, Judah begins to pay tribute to them. But another thing that happens is Babylon takes some of the uh, in a sense, rising stars within Judah. So the, 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 the best and the brightest. Uh, so it says young men without blemish, um, good-looking, intelligent. They take them back to Babylon. So wh- what's happening there? Well, essentially what's happening is um, that Babylon is essentially indoctrinating or attempting to indoctrinate Jews. And, and, and they would do this with other nations is basically if they can get the youngest the brightest, the best to act and think and believe like Babylonians, then what's going to happen? Well, right. th- The next generation, they're just going to be Babylonian. And so in the same way that um, companies today, who do they market to? Well, they're not, they're not normally marketing to, you know, 65 year olds. They, <laughs> they market to teens to 18 to 25 year olds, because those are going to be the ones with buying power in the future. Okay. And so Babylon is essentially saying we want to we want to conquer this nation, but we don't simply want to conquer them and have to then rule them militarily all along. We want them to become Babylon, yeah. Yeah. And so that's what they do. And so Daniel and uh, I mean, there's a group of these, but we know the names of Daniel. Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which that's actually their Babylonian names. But um, the, the four of them are part of that group. Uh, but in addition to taking, to, to taking people, the other thing that Babylon takes, which is really significant, is that it takes some of the, the items from the temple and it puts them in the temple in Babylon. And so the stuff from the God of Israel's house... Is now in the house of of Shinar, the god one of the gods of Babylon, and so what is really, really powerful in that moment is that it seems from a human perspective from an ancient Near East perspective that Babylon's god has won that because Babylon won, therefore their god must be more powerful and look here's the proof the items from the temple are in uh, are in our temple now um, And so that's how Babylon's, that's, sorry, Daniel, that's how Daniel starts is this moment of we have the people and we have the items from their temple, therefore we win in a sense. Um, But the overarching theme of Daniel is that God is actually over all nations and all history, that he is the one who is exalted. uh, And that's what's going to come out. And so the first half of the book is this narrative. And so it's, where you find these stories of the King of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams that Daniel interprets. And then um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow. And so they're thrown into a, into a fire fiery furnace and they survive. And Daniel refuses to, to pray um, to um, basically to Babylon and praise to his God, um, to, to the Lord. And so he's thrown into a lion's And So that's kind of the first half of Daniel is the narrative. And then the second half is prophecies. So, Daniel actually breaks down real simply first half narrative, second half prophecy. Yeah. In all of it, the theme is that God is over all of history, over all the nations. Um, that is, that's one of the things that in these dreams that Nebuchadnezzar has. And you got to remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man right. in every room he ever walks into. He's the most powerful man in the world. And, but he can't control his dreams. And so he has these dreams and he comes to Daniel afterwards and says, can, you know i need you to explain these to me and over and over again the answer is god is saying that he is powerful and that he rules so daniel 2 i'm looking at it says daniel says let the name of god be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him it is he who changes the times and the epochs he removes kings and establishes kings and he, i mean he's saying this to the king of babylon he says god removes kings pretty bold and yeah. establishes kings uh and and so that's this theme, and so he goes on to interpret this dream, and then later um, dreams as well, to basically or later prophecies as well, to say, th- yes, you, you're in charge right now. That God has given you um, that control right now, but your your days are gonna, are numbered. They're going to end. So they end. Other kingdoms will come after you. Those will also end. And then one day, um, and Daniel seven is going to say this, one day there is um, there is a king coming uh and daniel 7 is going to say this it says i kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days another term for for god and was presented before him and to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all the na- people's nations and men of every language might serve him uh, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and it's this image of this everlasting kingdom which we know six centuries later, Jesus is going to come on the scene and call himself right. the Son of Man. So this theme of Daniel is that um, God rules all history uh, and He is in control,
0: which again is powerful given that right. Babylon's there. One of the things I want to point out that you said, which I just thought was it was just good, of Daniel is uh, at least it was for me, and I'll speak for myself. Maybe some some listeners feel the same way, but. Um, the first part's a little easier as we read it. The second part's a little confusing, and so even you just giving it that outline of, hey, the first part is maybe a little more narrative, a little history, and then we kind of get a little more prophetic, uh, even a little apocalyptic. Uh, And so that that's just a good reminder for us of of to, to, it puts that story in manageable, understanding context for us to understand. So I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah, and and Ezekiel's really, you know, transition to that one. Ezekiel's
1: really this same in terms of you read it and it's kind of confusing absolutely and yet there really is a structure to it um Ezekiel's going to start with kind of an opening vision and then there's going to be a series of of warnings and prophecies of destruction uh for Judah uh because this is written um basically Ezekiel's taken in the second group of captives but it's before Jerusalem has been destroyed and so the first half of of Ezekiel is basically coming destruction. Then there's a section in the middle that's judgment on other nations, and then there's this closing section that's prophecies of promises of hope and and restoration, even visions of a new temple. And so, um, so again, th- there's confusion within there, but the the overarching structure is actually right. pretty clear. Right. Um, and so e- Ezekiel has this this theme of uh, really the glory of God, and so there's this vision in chapter. One of Ezekiel seeing and and over and over again the phrase is something like he says you know I see this and it was something like you know I I mean he calls the living creatures and then I looked and I saw something is sounded something like uh, the sound of rushing waters and I I looked and it was something like a throne I mean just over and over again and um I, you know something like a cart glo- with wheels yeah or- glowing <laughs> metal I mean it's just all these languages and, and at the end of the day, you realize that Ezekiel is saying, I saw something holy and amazing and glorious and I can't even I can't even put it into words. And so it's this image of the glory of God, which Wayne Grudem, who we, we a theologian we talk about sometimes uh, defines the glory of God as the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. And so Ezekiel is going to picture that um, or he's going to be given a picture of that. And then in chapter 10, he has another vision where the glory leaves. The glory leaves the temple. And it's this shocking, heartbreaking moment for Judah of God's presence and glory seems to be leaving. And think what that means to them as a people right. who have been identified as the people of God all along. And now he's leaving. Um and so that's in that first half. And then in the second half, there's this amazing moment where the glory returns to the the vision of the new temple. And so it's, you know, it's not simply about returning to the land. It's about the glory of God. And, and that's, the, that's the distinction there. Um, and I think, again, it's so big that this happens while they're in exile. Ezekiel, he opens the book up by saying, I had this vision while I was among the exiles. Heavens were opened. I saw visions of God. So it is a moment where he says, I am in exile. And yet
0: God is present in exile. Um, and and here's prophetic things that I receive from God. One of, uh, and again, I'll, I mean, just to point this out, because that, that's helpful for me of Ezekiel is one of those books that historically, if being honest, I'm, if I'm feeling this way, I know there's listeners who feel the same way uh, That is, it's just confusing. And in, in, in so just in what you're saying, again, giving context to it, recognizing that, I mean, if, if you don't have an understanding of even chapter one, you're like, what am I seeing? There's this something like this, there's rushing waters, there's like a floating car or car to, what's going on here. Uh, and yet, uh, to, to, to your point, uh, which I'm super helpful for me and, and I'm assuming other people as well, but it's structured really well. Uh, it's about the glory of the Lord in, in giving some structure to, to something that that's more prophetic, a kind of not necessarily apocalyptic, but uh, we don't necessarily have genres like that in, in 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 the western culture and so uh you breaking it down that way r- really helps us navigate that and, and gets uh by God's grace the, the the intent of what we need to get from from Ezekiel so yeah. uh, that's that's really good uh, so now do now do Esther what what's yep. g- give, give us a brief summary of Esther
1: um on Esther uh basically um it, it's a it's an easy read it's it's one that you can you can read in in one sitting pretty easily Un, you know unlike in ezekiel that's harder to follow Esther's a straightforward right. historical story and so basically the the gist of it is that uh, the king of persia uh, who's called ahasarius or, or xerxes um, he is having a banquet of his leaders uh, military leaders uh, and the the queen dishonors him and so He uh, demands a new queen, and one there's a government employee uh, who happens to be a Jew because a lot of the Jews remained in exile, even though some have gone back at this point. A lot of them are still there; they've taken up residence in Persia, and so one of them works for the Persian government. His name is Mordecai, and he suggests his cousin Esther uh, to essentially enter enter this beauty pageant, queen pageant. Which, um, you know, I'll be clear: the Bible is not saying, "Hey, that." the The beauty pageant aspect of it is anything admirable i mean if anything the the pettiness of the king of persia comes out but um but esther then becomes the queen and uh you know shortly afterwards probably uh you know within the span of a few years um there is uh the the man mordecai uh basically comes into um you know the the opposition of essentially the prime minister, a guy named Haman and Haman is so upset at Mordecai for the, the supposed disrespect that he sees that he says that I'm, I don't want to just punish Mordecai. I want to wipe out the entire Jewish nation. And so once again, the Jewish nation is at risk as it has been over and over again Uh, in, in Genesis, in Exodus, in Kings and Chronicles and judges. I mean, all through, I mean, again, the nation is at risk. And again, God cares for them. And so he uses Esther um, to call attention to this. She draws the king's attention to it. The king uh, agrees to overrule Haman's, and not necessarily overrule, but basically he punishes Haman. Haman is executed, and he gives the Jews the right to defend themselves. And so they're rescued. And it's a it's a holiday that, that the Jews acknowledge to this day called Purim. Um, that that Jews still acknowledge um, this many years later. Of this was a time when God cared for His
0: people. One of uh, this is just a an interesting fun fact. I think Andrew brought this up the other day. But two books in Scripture that do not mention, uh, I believe, the, the, the name of the Lord. One is Song of Solomon. The other is Esther. So random Bible trivia. Yeah. Uh, and some people have even said like
1: hey, maybe Esther shouldn't be in the Bible because of of reasons like that. Um, You know, the reality is, even though his name isn't mentioned, he's there all along. I mean, the number of um, kind of, you know, quote, providential moments, um, you know, there's a lot of those. Let me put it that way. So the number is high. Um, There's a lot of those. And, And again, just the care and rescue for his people. And I think, you know, even in that, there's a lesson for us. There's going to be times where we see God real clearly. There's going to be a lot of times where we don't,
0: but that doesn't mean he's not present. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so in, in summarizing those, I mean, we see really in all these books, uh, I mean, uh, spe- specifically in, in Ezekiel, this uh, idea of God's presence or his, his dwelling leaving. And obviously at the end of Ezekiel, we see that coming back, but going back to, to that theme that, that we've chosen God glorifying himself by dwelling with the Holy covenant people. How, how do these exile books, uh, because it looks grim because they're in exile. Uh, uh, but, but uh, how do these books draw out that theme? And, and what do we see these books in light of that theme? Yeah. So, so if a theme of scripture is that God is
1: glorifying himself by dwelling among a Holy covenant people, well, then it, it needs to show up on some level in these books as right, well. Right. Uh, these books need to need to fit into it. And so, um, You know, I mentioned that a theme of Ezekiel is the glory of God, and it's so clear um, that 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 that's the case in Ezekiel, is that God is about glorifying himself. Mm. There's a phrase that shows up almost 70 times in Ezekiel. Some people call it the recognition phrase, where God says, I did this that they may know that I'm the Lord. Mm. And that happens, he says, I judge nations that they may know that I'm the Lord. I regather Israel that they may know that I'm the Lord. Um, I want other nations to know that I'm, the Lord. I mean, just over and in, in, in tons of different situations, the point is that they might know that he is the Lord. Um, And and I think that that is, you know, (laughs) you you don't read Ezekiel, you don't read Daniel um, and think God really ought to make a big deal out of us. Mm. You know, I mean, you just don't because you see his magnitude, uh, his control over history his otherness, in a sense, in Ezekiel. I mean, he is other. You know, Jesus, when he when he taught his disciples to pray, says, you know, pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We we roll through that phrase. Our Father who art in heaven. That is an unbelievable contradiction. Right. And Ezekiel is going to draw that out a little bit to say, look at the one who is in heaven. Look at his majesty, his otherness, his holiness. I mean, the Lord's Prayer says that hallowed be thy name. You get a picture of his otherness and his holiness. And then what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is going to say, and yet he's our father. And so um, anyways, that, that's kind of a side note. But um, just this idea that God is worthy of glory, history runs to the ends that he sets for it. Um, that is that is shot through. Um, Ezekiel in particular, because Ezekiel is a little more prophetic, a little more, um, you know, declarative, um, that God is glorifying himself. He even says he doesn't rescue them for their sake. He rescues them for the sake of his own name. And now that is tied up with what is good for them. So what, what is declaring his name is good for them uh, as well. So they go together, but he says, I rescue you, um, for the sake of my name is what he says. So, um, and then, you know, that's God glorify himself by dwelling among, again, they're in exile and God is still there with them. He dwells among his people. Uh, And and Ezekiel 36, there's a prophecy that he is going to send his spirit to dwell in his people. So it's going to go, it's going to go even farther. Uh, And then Ezekiel, Thirty-seven, he prophesies that there's going to be a sanctuary. That his sanctuary will be with his people. Um, again, that's in exile. He says, "I'm going to dwell with my people. My sanctuary will be with them." And then the end of the book is all about this new, this new temple that's going to be built. Uh, but then, it, you know, it's all these measurements, all these okay, the number of cubits and the number of hands breadth and that sort of thing. Okay, but then it ends with. I mean, this is the very last verse of Ezekiel. It says. I mean, this is after eight chapters of a new temple and a new, you know, a new land. Um, And the, but the whole book ends with the city shall be 18,000 cubits roundabout. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And so that's what is the defining point of the new Jerusalem is that the Lord is there. And that's what we see in Revelation. They don't need a temple anymore in Revelation. We don't need a temple anymore because the Lord is there. So um, God glorifying Himself by dwelling among a holy covenant people. Again, we've seen in all of these books that He has a people, and holiness matters. That's why they had to leave in the first place. Uh, they had to they had to leave because of sin, of, of a lack of holiness. Um, Ezekiel is going to call them the bride and say, "But but you had defiled yourself, and so He demands holiness." But he doesn't forget his covenant with his people. That's why Daniel in Daniel 9 can see the prophecy in Jeremiah that they're going to come out of exile and he can pray. And, he, and But what he throws himself on is not, is not, we've changed our ways in the last 60 years. That's not what he throws himself on. He says, Lord, you you said that you were going to do this. You're a covenant-keeping God. We were wrong. We sinned. We didn't listen to
0: the prophets. But you are a covenant-keeping God. It's cool. To, I mean, I think it's worth noting that to that point of, as we've gotten to this point, uh, the hope uh, that, that, that the people of God, uh, the hope they have is that, to your point, that that God is faithful to keep his covenant. And, I mean, we've seen this at this point, I mean, we're, we're getting toward the end of the series, that it's in spite of man's faithlessness, he is faithful. And what a message that is for us, that, that he's good, that he's faithful. And that his dwelling with us is solely uh, because uh, he's faithful to keep his covenant. And, and that's, uh, that is a worshipful, glorious thing that this glorious, good God uh, would, in spite of the faithlessness of man, would be faithful still to pursue to dwell with us. And, and, and obviously we see that in these books. One other thing
1: on Esther, there's this familiar phrase, um, familiar to some Um In chapter four, it says, for such a time as this. And so I think there is a lesson there on using the authority and the influence that we've been given for such a time as this. Esther was supposed to use her. It says, perhaps she became queen for such a time as this. So Esther was supposed to use her position um, in ways that would benefit God's people. But right after that, Mordecai says, if you don't act, then relief and deliverance will come for the Jews from another place. And so Mordecai has this settled, God's going to rescue his people. And, and I think that's part of recognizing the people of God. It's not about the land. It's about his glory first and foremost and about his people. Um, and so he's he, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews is what he says. God's going to rescue his people. And that's, again, that's a, a powerful thing for us as well. When we look at all of scripture and revelation.
0: God's going to rescue and deliver his people. What about as we, we kind of finish here, any other themes uh, that that you want to bring out in, in these books, uh, whether Ezekiel, Esther, Daniel, anything like that?
1: Yeah, probably um, two jump to mind. One is we as believers in Christ are actually called exiles ourselves. First Peter 2 is going to say you're aliens and strangers in this world. And so I think one of the the things about these books is that they can teach us something about what it means to live in exile. Um, if we're supposed to view our lives on some level as being in exile, which we should, this world
0: is not our home. And that's very practical for for today. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And 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 the longer you live, the more you realize that that things don't work right in this world. Uh, there is injustice. There is sickness. There is sin. I mean, all of these. I mean, this world doesn't fit. Um, whether it's sin struggles that you see in your own life and the lives of others that you say. I'm ready to be done with this, whether this is suffering in your life or the lives of, of others around you, whether you see them on the news or whether they're friends, it doesn't, the world doesn't fit. And, and this world is not supposed to be our home, but what is it? What is, what do we learn about how to live while we're in exile? The Jews weren't at home in Babylon. They weren't supposed to think of themselves as at home. Okay. And, and, um, you know, if I, if I jump to another book, Jeremiah, uh, he writes a message to Uh, or God gives him a message to send to the exiles. And uh, in Jeremiah 29, he says, um, uh, right. You're going to have to cut this out later because I'm going to look real fast, (laughs) but, um, he see, he says in Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city where you are. And so he's saying this to people in exile and he says, seek its welfare, be a blessing to the city that you're in. And so we see that from these books. We see, that in three books with people in exile, none of them call for revolt. Mm. Uh, Instead, you have Mordecai saving the life of the king. You have Daniel and Esther stewarding the influence that they have humbly. Uh, And so I think there's a challenge for us there to say, what does it mean for us to serve well in the city where we are? The the church that that I'm part of, we say, well, and this isn't original to us, but we say it a lot is uh, our city ought to look worse if all the Christians got taken Mm -hmm. out of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That, that, that we ought to be a blessing to the city. So number one, I think there's a lesson to serve well. Number two, I think there's a lesson to um, in the midst of that, to recognize our true allegiance. Don't be co-opted by the world system Mm -hmm. Um, in the world, not of the world. Is that, is that idea? But um, you know, you look at Daniel, he's offered food by the King. Uh, and he says you know what this would this would defile myself based on the laws that um of of god so i'm not going to eat that look at esther there's a point at which she says yeah even though i'm the queen i mean she had a lot to lose she was the queen and she risked that because her true allegiance wasn't to right. persia and it wasn't to her own spot it wasn't right. to her own well being and so again i think there's a lesson for us in that to say what is our true allegiance? Are you a child of the world? Are you a child of the kingdom? Children of the kingdom. I mean, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Children of the kingdom, they think about things differently. They spend their money differently. They're, they, um, their uh, anxiety has changed. Their relationships are changed. I mean, all of these sorts of things. Um, are you a child of the world? Are you a child of the kingdom? So, um, and, and in the midst of all of this, there is this longing for home that i mentioned that just that mm-hmm. that that should define us and, quote, and mark the people of god absolutely yeah, yeah yeah there's a quote i ran across that says what you want indicates more of who you are than what you have that's and good. so what what do you want um you know in a sense good exiles long for something else um and if we're real comfortable in this world something something's probably off um so um, so that was one thing I, I I really think these books teach. The other thing is just to continue to say, hey, the message of the gospel and the person of Christ is going to show up here as well. And so, you know, the message of the gospel is that we have sin and there there is a solution for that. You know, it's kind of a bad news, good news type scenario. Well, these books are going to say, I mean, look at why they're in exile in the first place. There is a right. punishment for sin. There is. Um, and it was removal from the land of God. And what are the people called to? They're called to repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's a recognition that sin is offensive to, to a holy God. We see that in Ezekiel in particular, but sin is offensive to a holy God. It also causes ruin to our neighbors. And um, Ezekiel 18 is going to say that it is a stumbling block to ourselves. Our sin is a stumbling block to ourselves. And I think that. Um, we, you know, when we look at sin, Ezekiel is going to mention, in a sense, all types. It's going to mention, you know, idolatry of the heart. It's also going to mention the way people treat um, treat their neighbor and treat the poor and treat the alien. And so it doesn't distinguish internal sins, external sins. Right. It doesn't necessarily distinguish sins of commission versus sins of omission. Right. We're sinful people and mm. we're called to repent from mm. it. Um, but. Even if we sit around and feel bad about our sins, we still need rescue. Right. And one of the, the questions that's going to come up throughout these books is, can, can one save many? Can the righteousness of one save many? Ezekiel is going to talk about this by, by using language of like the watchman on the wall, Ezekiel 33, that, hey, Ezekiel, you just need to proclaim it. And then as long as you proclaim it, then they're on, they're on their own. Whether they receive the message or not, mm-hmm. you know you're just a proclaimer. You you can't actually save anybody. You're just a proclaimer. Or he'll say other places. He'll say even if Noah and Daniel and Job, you know, were were here, they couldn't save these people. They could save themselves. They couldn't save these people. Like the righteousness isn't enough. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it just can't it can't be enough. Can the righteousness of the one save the many? But in Daniel and Esther, in particular, you see these hints of, and typologies of oh, you know, which when we see through the lens of Christ, we say oh, but what if in a mm-hmm. sense, what if there is one whose righteousness could save the many? The the familiar Daniel and the lines didn't seen. What do you have there? You have you have a blameless man who's living in another nation, and because of his blamelessness, the leaders turn him into. The ruling authority, the ruling authority looks at him, acknowledges and acknowledges that he's blameless, but feels stuck. And so what does he do? He throws him into a tomb and covers the tomb with a stone. And then the next day, the man walks out unharmed. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. You know, and, and, and then you look at Esther, you say, okay, well, what do we have in Esther? We have Esther, who is someone whose people are threatened. And she says, "I am willing to die on behalf of this people. Um, I'm willing to die on behalf of my people." Uh, and and so she goes in to see the king, but only by special permission. Like mm-hmm. she barely gets in, and then she weeps before the king, and the king recants or or changes his mind. Well, again, does that remind of anybody? Somebody willing to die for their people who goes before the king. Mm-hmm. But what we have in Jesus is so much greater than that because Jesus isn't just willing to die. He does die. Jesus doesn't just barely get in to see the king. He gets in and allows, brings others with him. Mm-hmm. We can go with boldly with confidence, Hebrews says. And yes, he weeps before his father, but he weeps before a father who wants to save his right. people, not has to be convinced. And And so in all of this, what we see is we see these these books point to uh, one who is coming, who is who is greater, and whose righteousness can actually save the many. And so, I think that that's that's some of what uh, what I love about this. I, I jotted this down that these are these are books that are written of a people in captivity, of people whose sin has put them in a place where forces around them hurt them, and where God seems more distant than He is. And I think we live in that. Yeah, in in that um, not in the same way that they did, um, but but some of us. Um, all of us experience that on some level, um, and true restoration depends not on their efforts, but on God. And, and maybe just, maybe there's somebody whose righteousness is great enough that he, that, that he can accomplish it, not just for himself, but for all, for all of his people to
0: his glory. In uh, and, and again, I mean, just the typology there and in, in all these books that we've covered, uh, of. What we have seen that we've clearly seen that as we dive into these books, as we do this series, that that t- t- to read the Old Testament with the New Testament in mind through through kind of this gospel New Testament lens. Uh, it really um makes these books worshipful and, and come alive and and so just praise God. It's it's fun to, to 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 go through these and to see the gospel uh thread throughout throughout all of this, all pointing to Christ and his goodness. Um and that's that's just really see so uh well andrew thank you uh and uh, we'll, we'll pick up next time uh looking forward to it you've been listening to the light bears institute podcast a production of light bears ministries for more information visit lightbears.com